This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for July 13, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Baseball. It's America's pastime, played by Americans since the founding of the U.S. As the All-Star Game returns to Washington, D.C., we sit down with columnist and baseball expert George Will. He's the author of 14 books, three of which are on the game. He explains why baseball is the perfect game for American democracy, how its history is intertwined with our political history, and how past presidents have influenced part of the game. 1937 at Griffith Stadium, Washington. Babe Ruth is now retired with his wife, Claire. J. Edgar Hoover in the stands. Starting pitchers are Lefty Gomez and Dizzy Dean. Well, uh, they have a lot of great pitchers uh, in the world today. And I would uh, class myself best in the National League as a right-hander. And uh, they have a lot of good right-handers in the American League also. President Roosevelt throws out the first ball. In the third inning, Joe DiMaggio singles off Dizzy Dean. Next up, Lou Gehrig then slams Dean's fastball out of the park to give the American League a 2-0 lead. That home run starts the American League on its way to an 8-3 victory. That from the first All-Star game here in Washington, D.C. in 1937, and we are in the Georgetown office of columnist and author George Will, also a baseball expert. That event in 1937, by the way, included a who's who of Washington, D.C. politics, FDR and J. Edgar Hoover. FDR actually was at the game earlier, five years earlier, where Babe Ruth supposedly called his shot. I dispute that that happened, and Ruth never actually claimed to have done it. But anyway, Roosevelt was there. He was campaigning uh, that fall for president for his first term. In 1937, here in Washington, a Cleveland Indian named Earl Averill lined a ball off the toe of the National League's pitcher at the time was Dizzy Dean, who we didn't know as much then about how to baby a pitcher's arm, went on pitching that day and continued to pitch without his toe healing, changed his motion, ruined his arm, and so naturally my Cubs got him for the worthless part of his career. Cubs had a pattern of doing that. You've said that baseball is the right game for America. Why is that? Well, it's the right game for a democracy to begin with because it's the sport of the half loaf. No one ever gets what they all that they want. There's so much losing in baseball, so much failure. You go to spring training, every team essentially knows they're going to win 60 games and they're going to lose 60 games. They play the whole season to sort out the middle 42. So if you, if you win 10 out of 20 games, you're definitionally mediocre. If you win 11 out of 20, you got a shot of being in the postseason. So it's a game where of small differences making big differences. And as I say, uh, 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 it's the right sport for a political system that presupposes coming to terms with a lot of failure. I want to point out at the outset that we're in your office here in Washington, D.C. You're a well-known author and conservative columnist, but this, this is like a shrine to baseball. Of course, yes. I, I'm, my email address is baseballhabit. Uh, I only write about politics to support my baseball habit, which gets worse and worse as I get older and older. 
You're supposed to outgrow these things, but I don't think I'm going to. George, Will, you've written how many books? 14, I believe. Three on baseball. Which one was the number one bestseller? Uh, Men at Work, The Craft of Baseball, which I'm told is now the best-selling baseball book ever. I'm pretty sure it sold more than my other 13 books combined, which I think speaks well of the country, <laughs> that they're much more interested in that stuff. Why baseball? Why is this your passion? I don't know. I mean, first of all, I can't remember life without it. Uh, I became a baseball fan at about age seven in 1948. It was I grew up in central Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, a university town. My father was a professor of philosophy at the University of Illinois. And baseball was a kind of connection to metropolitan America. It was literally in the air. It was on the radio, which was the big thing then. We didn't have television in 48. And Chicago had two teams, and St. Louis had two teams. St. Louis then was the westernmost outpost of Major League Baseball. They had the Browns, who then became the Orioles shortly thereafter. Um, so it was a way of being connected with urban America, which was a big deal to go little boy in central Illinois. So let's talk about presidents and baseball, because as you well know, Richard Nixon had once said that had he not gone into politics, he would have been a sports writer. He was at the All-Star Game in Cincinnati in 1970. Let's listen. On hand to give a hand are the president, his wife, and baseball's commissioner, Bowie Kuhn. sets the style for the early part of the game. Pitching dominates. The All-Star Game in 1970, and George Will, you were there? I was. I started going to All-Star Games in 1987, and I've been to all but, I think, three since then. Um, The All-Star Game in 70 is remembered not for Mr. Nixon being there, due respect, It's remembered because of the hometown boy who grew up there and played there for the Reds, Pete Rose, uh, wasn't quite in the spirit of things about this as an exhibition game. And he rounded third and came barreling into Ray Fossey, uh, I believe he was the Oakland A's catcher, maybe the Indians, I should know these things. Anyway, he hit Fossey so hard it uh, essentially shortened his career. And as you know, the All-Star Game coming to Washington, D.C., what do you think of the All-Star Game? Well, it's hard to know what to make of it. Uh, There was a time when the two leagues had separate presidents and separate umpiring crews and separate identities, and they really kind of cared uh, who won. And the real stars like Willie Mays and Stan Musial would get four at-bats. Almost no one gets four at-bats anymore because they want to get everyone in the game. It's like seven-year-old soccer. Everyone gets a participation trophy. So it's hard to know how to think about it. The, in order to make Fox television happy for a number of years, about four or five years, they said this time it matters was their slogan. And they said the home field advantage in the World Series goes to the win of the All-Star Game, which infuriated everybody because this is important and you don't want something important decided by a game in which people are not treating it as really important. Out of all the presidents that you've covered over the years, is it safe to say that you were the closest with our 40th president, Ronald Reagan? Yes. I want to go back to September of 1988 and listen to what Harry Carey said as he welcomed President Reagan to Wrigley Field in Chicago. 
Boy, a lot of guys come out first. There he is with a cup jacket on. Ronald Reagan, the president of the United States. Yosh is with him, gave him the warm-up jacket. That was September 1988 in the final months of the Reagan presidency. And George Will, you wrote a book called A Nice Little Place on the North Side. About Wrigley Field at 100, which it turned in 2014. Uh, Yeah, I, I became a Cub fan at an age really too tender to make life-shaping decisions. I had to choose. We were midway between Chicago and St. Louis. All my friends became cardinal friends and grew up happy and liberal. And I became a gloomy conservative because of the, of the Cubs. I also didn't like the Cardinals broadcaster. It was a guy named Harry Carey who wound up in Wrigley Field. And there's a statue to the guy outside Wrigley Field to this day. So um, life takes funny caroms. Did you talk baseball with President Reagan? Not much. Uh, we t- I talked baseball a lot with George W. Bush, who, of course, uh, he didn't want to be president. He wanted to be commissioner of baseball and was a part owner, small owner, but a part owner of the Texas Rangers and helped build their new, their new ballpark. Uh, eight times, once a year, I would organize a dinner of baseball players and their wives, significant others, whatever, to come in and talk baseball with the president. I'm sure it was probably the happiest night of the year for him. He didn't have to think about Iraq and Afghanistan and al-Qaeda and all the rest. What was that like, and what was he like? Well, it was great because he knows his stuff. Um, And uh, uh, he has a lot of friends in baseball, and he just loved talking to these guys. There was another moment in baseball history after 9-11, and that, of course, is when President George W. Bush was in New York City at Yankee Stadium. This is what it sounded like. For tonight's ceremonial first pitch, and please welcome the President of the United States. That was the first pitch, October of 2001, with President George W. Bush. And take us back to that moment, George Will. How significant was it? Well, it was very significant because it was in New York. It was uh, not that far. Well, the Bronx isn't all that far from the southern tip of Manhattan. And uh, it was important to reestablish the sense of normality, including the fact that the president could be in a ballpark full of people without allowing security concerns to overwhelm him. However, of course, what made his first pitch, which was a strike, all the more remarkable is he was worried about security. They had him in a big bulletproof vest. I don't know if you've ever thrown out the first pitch at a game. I did in Wrigley Field. I was never so nervous in my life. Bush was down underneath near the Yankees clubhouse, warming up, playing catch with someone. Derek Jeter walks by. And all Jeter said to him was, don't bounce it, they'll boo you. What a way to get a, get, a, get a guy even more nervous than he had to have been already. 
You love the game. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I come in in the morning and I turn on the Major League Baseball Network and I watch it until noon. And then I turn to Weather Matters unless there's a day game. Then I watch it. How many games do you attend typically? Fair number. I've got season tickets to the Nationals. And I have a handicapped son, a Down syndrome guy who's 46, who does a little work in the Nationals clubhouse. So I like to keep tabs of him. So I go to a lot of games. If I could, let me go back to Ronald Reagan. This moment back in 1983 with another famous sportscaster, Howard Cosell. It's our honor, our privilege to have with us the President of the United States. Mr. President, I think this game is living up to everything one would expect from a World Series. It certainly is. I haven't seen one as tight as this that I can remember, at least for a for a long time, or even remember one that has been there seven hits and two of them have been home runs. I remember you telling the story of one you called off the teletype. You mean the one where I uh, (laughs) called a game that wasn't going on? That's right, sir. (laughs) Yes, it was the ninth inning, Cubs and Cards, zero, nothing and nothing, and uh, the wire went dead. I was doing a (laughs) telegraphic report. Billy Jurgis at the plate, so I decided that maybe I'd take a chance, and I had him foul one, and then I had him foul another one, and I had him foul one. It was almost a home run, and then I described the two kids that got one that he fouled back. A third one I went on till I was setting a world record for foul balls. And they did finally get the wire fixed while I still had him at the plate, and the first word that came into me was that he popped out on the first ball pitch. Most exciting game I've ever heard. <laughs> George Will, that was President Reagan with Howard Cosell, and again, the famous story of how he had to recreate exactly what was happening because the teletype for a while wasn't working. Right. It was quite common back then in the mid-30s to uh, recreate games with the wrapping a little hammer on a piece of wood to simulate the the, the ball hitting the bat and all the rest. Uh, by the way, that appearance with Cosell cost the Orioles a game. I think it was the only game they lost in that World Series. He got into the booth with Cosell, and as Reagan had a way of doing, he got the wreck on tour came out, and he went on longer than he was supposed to, so they delayed the game while the president was wrapping up his story. And the Oriole pitcher, who did not fare well after this long delay, blamed the delay on Reagan. So Reagan, talk about making history, actually affected a, 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 a World Series game. How do you research all of this? It's just, you know, if you live it, if you read about it, if you worry about it, then it just, it's, it just fills you up. We sat down this spring with Sheila Tate, who you know served as President Reagan and Nancy Reagan's uh, way, press secretary. I mean, Ra- the Cubs won the Cold War. Few people understand this historic point. In the, 1930, in the 1920s, uh, Wrigley, Mr. Wrigley, William Wrigley, the, after whom the ballpark is named, bought, <clears throat> bought Catalina Island off the coast of Southern California. And he said, fine, we'll, I, I own the Cubs. The Cubs will train in spring training on Catalina Island. At about this time, a, a Des Moines sportscaster named Dutch Reagan talked his station into sending him out to cover the Cubs. And Dutch Reagan said, as long as I'm out here, I might as well have a screen test. So he got a screen test, 
did all right, became an actor, became president, and won the Cold War. And it's all because of the Cubs that they drew him to Catalina Island. Did he tell you that story? No. It's just, it's obvious. Well, let me go back to Sheila Tate, who you know. She said this about you and state dinners. We'll listen. He told me he was invited to the first state dinner, and he sat at the president's table. I said, well, that's an honor. And he said, well, normally it would be. But he said there was some businessman there sitting next to, to President Reagan, and he monopolized the conversation. He said, none of us got to say a thing. And he said, I, I was so angry. I went home, and ever since then, I refused to go to state dinners. And finally, Nancy called him and said, you know, it's the, the Gorbachev dinners. And this was late in the second term. He said, she said, it's high demand. She said, don't you want to come? And he said, I hate those things. I don't want to come. And she said, I'll seat you next to Joe DiMaggio. He said, what time should I be there? (laughs) (laughs) Our conversation back in April with Nancy Reagan's press secretary, Sheila Tate. So I have to ask you, George Will, what was the conversation like between you and Joe DiMaggio at that state dinner? I don't remember. I was too starstruck. But uh, as I recall, DiMaggio went around and got the autograph of Gorbachev and Reagan on a baseball with his autograph on it, and it's in Cooperstown now. You were starstruck? Of course. Not by Gorbachev and those people, but by DiMaggio. What did he mean to the game? DiMaggio, his great moment, of course, was the 56th game hitting a streak in 1941. The summer of 1941 was a perilous time in the world. It was pretty clear that we were not going to be able to escape forever involvement in the war. So DiMaggio's grace and elegance... And the sheer staying power of hitting in 56 games, which no one has, of course, approached since, was what the country needed at that time in 1941, an example of perseverance, an example of professionalism and seriousness. It was a bad time, but a luminous moment in a bad time. Let me turn to another president. He was more of a basketball fan than baseball, but President Obama talking with Bob Costas, talking about the game. Mr. President, we know of your basketball background. What kind of baseball guy are you? Well, you know, I am a big baseball fan. I didn't play organized baseball. Uh, And I grew up in Hawaii. Uh, My earliest memories of of baseball were actually the the, the Hawaii Islanders, which was was a minor league team. Pacific Coast League. Pacific Coast League. And an old rambling uh, ballpark that was about maybe six blocks from my grandparents' apartment. And, and we'd go in there uh, and, uh, you know, get boiled peanuts and watch the night game. And me and my friends, it is when we were 9, 10 years old, 11 years old, we'd uh, run out and try to grab the rosin bag at the end of the game, <laughs> cause havoc <laughs> onto the field. And, uh, so, so those are my earliest memories uh, of baseball. But I, I never, uh, partly because when I was really young, I was living overseas, you know, I never got involved in yeah. Little League and didn't, didn't have the chance to become part of an organized uh, baseball team. You remember the first Major League game you ever attended? When I was 11 years old, going to a Royals game because my, my grandmother's brother uh, lived in Kansas City. And I, I still remember going to that game. Had a great time. I'm trying to do the math. 11 years old. 11 years old. 1970. This would have been early 72, 73. And I'm trying... 
I have to confess, I do not remember who was playing for the Royals back then. So it's just before they got good. Just before it's just before George Brett that's exactly. and Whitey Brett, Herzog Brett, and Hal Brett, McRae. Brett wasn't playing yet. And so I'm trying to, I, I don't even think I'd, I have any idea who was in that lineup. They were only a few years into expansion. Yeah, yeah. but I, I remember having a great time at the game. That was an interview with Bob Costas and President Barack Obama. We are in the Georgetown office of George Will, author and syndicated columnist. He's written a number of books on the game of baseball. And what role, from your standpoint, over the years, do you think presidents have played in the game? Well, the, the, the tradition of throwing out the first pitch by the president sort of sealed the deal as baseball is the national pastime. Some People who should know better say football is, but they're confused. Why are they confused? Well, because by definition, baseball is the national pastime. And football, by the way, has serious problems that baseball doesn't have, namely that the human body isn't built for it, which is a kind of intractable problem that football will fail to solve. The first great baseball fan was William Howard Taft. And baseball is full of creation myths, the whole Cooperstown fiction, completely made up, completely fraudulent, but an amiable fraud, is that one day in the summer of 1839, Abner Doubleday went into Farmer Finney's pasture and invented baseball, just sprang from his brow. Actually, in the summer of 1839, he was nowhere near Cooperstown. He was a plebe at uh, West Point. The only thing Abner Doubleday ever started was the Civil War. If you go to Fort Sumter and Charleston Harbor and look at the, the plaque of all the Union officers who were serving there, you'll see Abner Doubleday was there as an artillery captain. But anyway, uh, the, the, the president who was a real terrific baseball fan was William Howard Taft, which is good because he was from Cincinnati, which claims with some justification to have the oldest professional franchise, the original Cincinnati Reds. And baseball, with its love of creation myths, the first this, the first that, is convinced, I should say, has convinced itself that the seventh inning stretch began because President Taft, whose weight fluctuated madly but got at one point up to 340 pounds, was at a Washington Senators game and he found the seats understandably confining and unable to bear it any longer in the seventh inning, he stood up. And people back then, being polite, thought the president was leaving, so they stood up out of respect. He wasn't leaving at all, just stretching. So he sat back down, and baseball professes to believe that that's where the seventh inning stretch comes from. It's probably as valid as the Cooperstown myth. A couple of quotes. You say baseball is heaven's gift to mortals, and baseball, it is said, is only a game true and the Grand Canyon is only a hole in Arizona. Can you elaborate? Yes, well, not all games are created equal. What, what makes baseball so addictive and so satisfying is, first, it's everydayness. The uh, uh, great Hall of Fame manager of the, <coughs> the Orioles, uh, Earl Weaver, once said, this ain't football, we play this every day. And the nice thing is, if you lose today, you can get well tomorrow. Football, you lose, you got to wait a whole week miserable waiting for something to happen. Second great thing about baseball is it's the first way that a young child can peg up with an adult. At about age seven, you decide Lefty Grove was the greatest pitcher of all time. Your father says it was Walter Johnson. You're just as good as he is. 
you know, just, you just, you're an expert at age seven. Get over it. Uh, third, the richness of the game, the sheer history of it. I mean, we have a record <clears throat> from the diary of a soldier at Valley Forge of playing a game of base. Until early in the 20th century, baseball was two words, just base and then ball. So it's been around a very long time. Actually, the Civil War helped spread baseball. The northern and southern troops moved around the country, and they left baseball often in their wake. And the sheer numerical richness, the sediment of numbers that baseball produces, because it's unlike basketball or soccer, it's not a game of flow. It's a game of episodes. Strike one, ball one, one out, two out, three outs, nine innings. Produces an enormous constantly thickening web of numbers that enable people, A, to be expert in something, and B, to compare one era to another. There's only been one disjunction in the history of baseball, and that's the dead ball, lively ball era at about 1920. Aside from that, with, we'll have to say, the performance-enhancing drug parenthesis in, in, from... Uh, say, the, 18, uh, the 1990s to the middle of the first decade of this century. So a remarkable continuity where baseball is pretty much the same. Bruce Catton, the great Civil War historian, said, if you took someone from Catton's era, it'd be 50s and 60s, and plopped them down in a ballpark in the McKinley era, they'd know what was going on. It hadn't changed that much. Do you weave in your passion of baseball often in your columns? And if so, how? Not too often. I try and restrict that um, because it's it's almost a a tick that uh, one has to restrain. But I write uh, an opening day baseball quiz column every year. And actually, I've written a uh, a, uh, baseball column for the Sunday before the All-Star game. Telling them if there are things wrong with baseball, my motto is even if it is broke, don't fix it. Because it'll fix itself. Baseball has a marvelous capacity for adapting and evolving new tactics and strategies. People are all in an uproar now because the use of metrics and data and defensive shifts is uh, complicating life for some hitters. My position is get better hitters, learn to hit around the shift, find a new career. You know, leave baseball alone. I, I have to go back to the, the, the dinner that you had with George W. Bush. Eight I mean, of them. Eight dinners. I, I, going back to my earlier question, what was the room like? Was it just a, a bunch of guys sitting around talking baseball? Yeah, exactly. No politics allowed. Afterward, the president would always take the group down into the Oval Office. It was a big thrill. And at one point, he showed one of our groups, I've forgotten which one, the pistol that Saddam Hussein had been carrying when he was pulled out of that spider hole when our, our guys captured him in, uh, in Iraq. But it, it was a, a definitely a politics-free zone. Well, do you have another book on baseball? I don't think so. I've written three, and uh, I've said all that I know, probably more than I know, about baseball. So uh, not yet. Final question. As an avid baseball fan, predictions as the 2018 season unfolds? Well, um, it's it's actually distressingly easy to predict some of these things. Uh, either the Yankees or the Red Sox, one of them's going to win the American League East, and the other's going to be the, one of the two wild cards. Houston is very apt to win the the uh, 
American League West. Cleveland certainly will win the American League East. The Seattle Mariners probably will be the other wild card. So in a sense, I think we've got them all figured out in the American League. In the National League, it's another matter. You've got tight races in all three divisions, which is the way you want it. George Will, thank you for your time. Thank you for letting us come by your office. We appreciate it. Glad to be with you. And thank you for listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly Podcast. We hope you subscribe to this podcast and find other episodes wherever you listen.